This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Yesterday, we also got uh, the final word on the tribunal hearing into the street check conducted uh, apparently on Councillor Matthew Green. Uh, The uh, hearing has found that uh, the officer in charge was Constable Andrew Pfeiffer was not guilty. He was charged with discreditable conduct under the Police Services Act. That's a very important phrase. I'll get to that in a couple of minutes. Uh, after he stopped uh, Council Green back in 2016. Uh, as I say, uh, Constable Pfeiffer found to be not guilty of, of the uh, the charges that were laid against him. Uh, Councillor Green had this reaction. The statistics bear out overwhelmingly by the police service's own reports that there is a disproportionate impact on black males in our communities, four to one. That's why I framed it as a conscious or an unconscious bias. I don't know what he was thinking, but I know what I was feeling, and I know that he had no reason to stop me. Uh, others uh, took a different tact on this, including uh, Constable Pfeiffer's lawyer, Bernard Cummins. This was a complete and utter um, ego uh, trip by uh, Mr. Green that lasted five days, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, it was pretty obvious in the conclusions that were reached with the hearing officer. It's all about all that. Lots more to talk about on this. Uh, one of the people that was there yesterday for the announcement was uh, Clint Twolan, who was the president of the Hamilton Police Association. He joins us on the Bill Keller Show. Clint, thanks so much for the time today. No, thanks for having me. I, I, I'm going to assume that you're pleased with the verdict yesterday? Uh, very pleased. Uh, your reaction? As, give me the atmosphere that was going on then and, and, and what happened when uh, the verdict was read. Well, uh, what I've said in the past is if if you had the opportunity to actually sit through the tribunal i would say that the decision by the hearing officer was not a big surprise uh... but there was certainly a sense of relief um, because not just for uh, constable pfeiffer but all of the policing uh... you know police officers here in hamilton in particular because we knew that the decision would have an impact on the way they do their job the uh... hearing officer was a terence kelly who was a retired police chief uh, who was listening to this. And, and I want to get into the nuts and bolts, if I could, for this. And, and I'm not suggesting that you're representing uh, police uh, agencies or, or what goes on with the Police Act, Clint, but you are f- obviously aware of this. And I mentioned in my opening comments here that uh, these charges were placed under the Police Services Act. These are not criminal charges. This is not criminal court. Uh, this is not civil court. This is Police Services Act. Uh, and and I believe the legislation dictates that somebody who has knowledge of police services has to be the adjudicator in a situation like that. That's right. And th- there is a group of hearing officers, and from that group, that's uh, how they're decided as to who, who will actually hear a case and adjudicate it. So, you know, the suggestion by some people that, well, it was a, it was a cop that was adjudicating, so it, this is under the Police Services Act. Uh, it, and it has to be one of these people. I mean, that's those are the parameters that are set up within the Act, if I read this correctly. Absolutely, and there's going to be changes under uh, Bill 175 when it comes to the oversight. Uh, but in the, you know, until those those changes take place, you're absolutely right. The Police Services Act is the Act that governs governs police officers. Um, and I've spoken to this on a number of occasions because if you're looking in the private sector, uh, we often hear the Employment Standards Act. That's that's what governs workplace uh, rules and regulations, if you will, for the private sector. Uh, for all police officers, we're subject to the Police Services Act. Clint, I want to play the, the clip from Councillor Green, his reaction. And uh, I, I want to get your comment on that. Uh, just hang on one second. This is, a, this is what Councillor Green had to say. The statistics bear out overwhelmingly by the police service's own reports that there is a disproportionate impact on black males in our communities, four to one. That's why I framed it as a conscious or an unconscious bias. I don't know what he was thinking, but I know what I was feeling, and I know that he had no reason to stop me. All right, he's making the comments about Councillor Pfeiffer, but I, I, I get the sense from what Councillor Green was saying yesterday after the verdict was read that, that he was looking at this as, as basically a, 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 the police services were going to be on trial here, not just Co- Constable Pfeiffer. Uh, in, in other words, he was looking at a much broader context. He was looking for a form to actually debate or, I guess, to, to, to render an opinion about carding, about street checks, about uh, police statistics, etc., as opposed to, and, and it seems to some people that Constable Pfeiffer was just the pawn in this game. I would tend to agree with that, and, and I'm glad you played that clip, uh, 
Bill, because this is something that I've uh, toiled over for some time. Uh, uh, Councillor Green has used these statistics on a number of occasions, and he's referring to a presentation that the uh, deputy at that time, Deputy Gert, who's now the chief, presented to the Police Services Board. And the statistics that he's using are incorrect. He wasn't there that day, and it, there has to be some context given to that. Uh, this did involve the numbers that were presented uh, by Deputy uh, Gert at the time, and they involved street checks. Uh, what those numbers, to be a little bit more precise, uh, what those numbers indicated is the number of street checks that were conducted. And of those street checks, the numbers have obviously declined over the years, but the numbers were given in, uh, in a certain number of years. I think, believe it was 2011 to 2014 or something in that area. What uh, is lost in this discussion and, and keeps coming out, because this four-to-one ratio is inaccurate, to be brutally honest with you, uh, these street checks were uh, all conducted, or at least 99.9% of them were conducted down, uh, downtown in either Ward 2 or the urban growth area. And what is, is being lost here is the demographics of the area in which these um, street checks were actually being conducted. Uh, if you look at the numbers and if you were at the presentation, you would know that the, the, uh, there is a slightly disproportionate number, and that's about 1.5 uh, times more likely if you're, if you're black in the downtown, as opposed to about 1.12 for white people. So the, those statistics are uh, on their face troubling, but I can assure you that the, the, the message that's being relayed here is not accurate. Um, if you look at the, the numbers and if you were at the presentation, you'd, you'd understand those numbers a little bit better. Uh, again, I'm, I'm trying to drill down and find out exactly. I, I, I don't think I'm ever going to get into somebody's head and try to determine motivation. But uh, one of the other things, and I'm just going by a news report from uh, yesterday after the hearing, and you, I know you were in the hallway at the t- same time. I don't know if you heard this yet. But Councillor Green is quoted as saying, I think it was pretty clear within the first five minutes of the police service hearing that this was not the proper form to discuss factors around racial bias and profiling which again sounds to me as if he was using this as a form to try to debate those issues and not the charges against the constable. Well, I, I absolutely... And, and, and I, I just, uh, just as an adjunct to that, and I, you can comment on both of these, uh, the whole purpose of this hearing uh, through the Police Services Act was to determine the guilt or innocence of the charges against the constable, not to debate the broader issues of policy. I agree with you wholeheartedly, that, and that what happened was uh, that... We have a police officer who for two years has had to deal with this, and, and uh, the vast majority of our police officers don't want to be in the spotlight. They want to go out. They want to do their job. And I agree. He was used as a pawn in a bigger political play by Councillor Green. Um, you know, there are forums and there are times and, and there are places in which you can have these discussions. In my opinion, this was not it. This, uh, the Police Services Act, when, when there's an allegation of misconduct, it's workplace misconduct, that they, the, the police officer has done something wrong either in the course of their duties or um, it, within their, the parameters of them, them working as a police officer. This was not the, the, the venue, if you will, to be going down this road and dealing with issues around racial profiling. I mean, if this were another example, Clay, I'm I just getting into the philosophical for a second here, okay? If there were charges brought against an officer, any officer, but for instance, uh, the use of a firearm, uh, the uh, the investigation under the Police Services Act would be w- why did they use the firearm, not whether or not police should have firearms. And it, I, I don't know if Councillor Green doesn't understand that, or if I, I'm, I'm not trying to suggest there's all nefarious motives. I don't know, but it just seems as if there was a, a, a focus here that's not really applicable to the Police Services Act. I agree, and and well, I, I mean, Bill, I'll be brutally honest. It was a stage for Councillor Green for him to get his message across, his political message. I I, I have no problem saying that because. Uh, that's exactly what happened, and you're right. Um, the, the forum for, you know, professional misconduct for a police officer—that's not, not—it's just not the place to be dealing uh, political agendas, and that's that's what happened here. There's no secret that uh, that uh, Councillor Green has a strong voice uh, with regards to carding, and he's not only done it on a municipal level; he's done it on a provincial level. He's done it on a federal level. Uh, he's just recently been at the uh, federal NDP co- uh, conference in Ottawa. It's, it's going down this road, and he's also been in the states doing it. So this is this is not new, and unfortunately, like you said, a police officer's life has been put on hold and and it's it's had a big impact on his life well i've talked to people in in the legal realm who, who are more familiar with the police services act and, and these sorts of uh, of hearings uh, such as what happened here under this particular situation 
And and as as I had that discussion, I mean, it was brought to my attention that uh, and according to the the testimony and according to the reports that we've had, that actually uh, Terrence Kelly worked very well within the parameters. And and I think his comments that he made yesterday, I think, are very germane there, uh, where he says essentially that uh, he. Uh, he says, I lack the necessary confidence in Mr. Green's credibility, credibility rather, to accept his evidence that he was psychologically detained, uh, and, uh, and on and on and on. As a matter of fact, he also had some negative comments to say about some of the other people that were brought in as, as witnesses in this situation. Uh, it seems to me very much as if Terrence Kelly was sticking to the issue at hand, which were the charges against o- Officer Pfeiffer. Which is exactly what his his purview is, and that is to deal with the allegations of misconduct, in this case, discreditable conduct. And he did. uh, He stayed well within those parameters, and based on uh, the information and the evidence that was given, like you said, there was was not just an issue, but certainly... um, the, the, the hearing officer, he, he pointed out that the credibility is one of the most important things that you can have in a tribunal, and uh, Councillor Green lacked that credibility. There are different times and places, and, and I think it's worth noting to put this in context. Uh, th- and, and by the way, I don't think anybody, anybody not you, not any, the chief, not anybody else, is dismissive of the fact about, uh, about the concerns about, uh, about police treatment, etc., and police abuse. And if there are evidences of that, then obviously those need to be explored. And you and I have talked about that on the program before. But uh, is this the proper forum for it? I mean, this is something that's under the purview of the Attorney General. They've already made some modifications. There have been changes in policy. There have been reduction in numbers. It just seems as if uh, somebody wanted all of that stuff brought into this hearing. And, uh, and I guess in their mind it was relevant to what was going on, but not in the, in the context of what the Police Services Act determines these things are supposed to do. Well, you're absolutely right, and uh, this has been an ongoing thing. There has been significant changes. Uh, the COI legislation, which uh, was introduced, and we've now been dealing with for over a year now, um, and and again, going back to the to the venue, this has cost the uh, Hamilton taxpayers, I estimate, somewhere in the neighborhood of $60,000 for this tribunal, and it wasn't the venue to deal with this, and ultimately, uh, the findings were very accurate. The truth came out, and here we are today. Uh, and and to be honest, now we're heading, uh, according to Councillor Green, off to human rights to try to deal with the same issue again. Well, which is his right, I assume, uh, under, under these circumstances, to do what he wants to do on this. But what what from your standpoint, Clint? What are the next steps as far as as Officer Pfeiffer is concerned, and and everyone else on police services? Well, we aren't going to be making significant changes. Uh, what I can tell you is one of the issues that were brought up uh, during the tribunal is about training. Uh, our officers and our, I mean, you know, sometimes, <laughs> I'm sure you know, Bill, uh, the, the service and the association don't see eye to eye. But I can, yeah, I've heard that, yeah. Uh, I, I can assure you that the service does everything it can and uh, is very live and sensitive to the issues around training when it comes to um, racial profiling, when it comes to uh, sensitivity, when it comes to diversity. These are active training um, um, issues in the service, and it happens on an ongoing basis. Whenever the service can make things better, if, if their, their ideas are put to them or suggestions, I can assure you that they take them to heart and they deal with them and they, and they implement them. So there's not going to be a big change for that. I think for Constable Pfeiffer, he, uh, I can tell you, Bill, yesterday he was exhausted. It was two long years. It's uh, bared a, a very heavy emotional and psychological burden on him. Not that he had done anything wrong, but the fact that he's in the, in the public eye, and that's not where he wanted to be. So where he's moving, he's, he's going to continue doing the, the good police work that he's been doing all along. What does it do to the mindset, though, of, of those that are basically paid to serve and protect, Clint? I mean, that's the phrase that's used, but, I mean, in fact, that's the job function. That's the job description. I've heard from a number of frontline officers that, uh, that there's a concern and a reticence now to do some of the things that they may think were necessary to do uh, as they patrol the streets in, in our community, uh, simply because they're afraid that, well, they're going to get called to task, rightly or wrongly, in situations like this. Well, in, in, in this case, the, the, the finding, the decision by the hearing officer is very clear that the officer did nothing wrong. Uh, and I would concur with those comments. I would say that officers are, are certainly going to second-guess uh, before they initiate something because they are going to look to this and say, I don't want to be 
uh, in the same shoes that Andrew Pfeiffer were, was in during this tribunal. So now, with that being said, I can assure you that the police officers are going to do it. It will not matter uh, who the person is. They are going to continue to serve uh, the, the citizens of Hamilton and, and protect them. I think what's going to happen, though, is you're going to see something in the back of their minds where they're going to be saying, uh, you know, is, is this worth it or not? Um, it, you know, is this going that extra mile? Is it worth it? I'm confident that they're going to continue to do great work like they always do. Clint Twolan, president of Hamilton Police Association, who's been following this, obviously, uh, since uh, its inception almost two years ago now. Clint, thanks as always for the time. Greatly appreciated. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, he was a uh, comedian, award-winning comedian. He was the guy that created Fat Albert. He was the cute guy that did the Jello commercials with the kids. He was America's dad, they called him. Because of the last uh, TV series they did, it, of course, as Dr. Huxtable. Well, yesterday, Bill Cosby was convicted of three counts of sexual assault, uh, convicted of drugging and molesting Toronto native Andrea Constad, and uh, that among many charges that have been laid against uh, Cosby over a number of years, actually. Uh, the statute of limitations had run out on some of them, which is why they couldn't bring those cases to court. Uh, in the case of uh, Ms. Constad, uh, the statute of limitations had not run out, and uh, the uh, to their credit, the district attorney's office and uh, police in the Philadelphia area uh, were very aggressive in pursuing the charges and doing the investigation into this. Uh, found guilty on three counts, each sir, uh, with a potential penalty, maximum penalty of 10 years. So technically, theoretically, Cosby could spend 30 years in jail if uh, the maximum sentence is given. Uh, he's 80 years of age. Uh, and as you might have expected, uh, Cosby's publicist, Andrew Wyatt, well, had a different take on things. Although he has been found guilty, he's innocent of these charges, and he maintains his innocence. And he's going to walk around as a man who's innocent because he didn't do anything wrong. Uh, that's Andrew Wyatt, uh, Cosby publicist, who a publicist, of course, is paid to, let's face it, you know, talk positively about his client. I want to uh, talk about the implications of the verdict yesterday, and, and I know they talked extensively about that on uh, the news talk stations down in the state yesterday, uh, but I think it has ramifications uh, all over North America, not just in Philadelphia, about the message that it sends about uh, victims, uh, about uh, the high and mighty, and, and so many other things that we've been talking about over the last little while. I want to bring Lenore LeCassick-Foss, director of SASHA, the Sexual Assault Center here in Hamilton, into the conversation. Lenore, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us today. I'm so glad to be here today with you, Bill. The message I got out of this, and you know the takeaway, when I heard the verdict on the radio yesterday, the exact thing that came into my mind was, nobody's above the law. Thank God they got that message. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, You know, it was interesting for me because I had really mixed feelings. I was surprised. Um, and then I was sad. Why am I surprised that, that some amount of kind of formal justice is served or or is is meted out in in these cases um, because I, I, you know last I I checked there were over sixty women who came forward with very similar uh, stories about their experience of sexual assault with Bill Cosby and and the fact that there was you know a conviction for one of the victims uh, you know where he was found guilty yeah that's it's I guess it's sad that we're all surprised. But you know what went on, and, and, and it's part of the sad commentary that has gone on for the number of years that, that we've been dealing with sexual assault, and it's been, it's been shoved into the shadows for the longest time. And, and to, you know, to that credit, the hashtag MeToo movement had a lot to do with bringing that out of the shadows and into the yeah. forefront, and that's necessary. But those who came forward with allegations about Cosby in the past, uh, they, were, they, were, they were harassed, uh, they were yes. threatened in some cases. Yes. There were cases of, 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 you know, basically almost threats to their lives in some situations. Yes, victim shaming, you know, uh, turning it around and saying, well, it was just you were asking for it, you wanted to yes. be in, you know, with a celebrity, yes. on and on and on. Uh, and, and that's so typical. And you've, we've seen cases like that time and time and time again. It is absolutely the first reaction that that still, unfortunately, to this day in the, in this Me Too moment, um, we still hear from survivors who uh, are hearing blame from the people around them. Well, why were you with that person? Why were you dressed that way? Why, you know, why, why? Like questioning all their behaviors, and we're not questioning why the the behaviors of of these these small number of men. But w what we know is that. 
they tend there there is a, a tendency to be serial predators, which we certainly saw with Cosby and we are seeing with uh, Weinstein allegedly. So I mean, I think that. We hear from victims that they're still often blamed in our community, and I, I really hope your listeners can can think about that and 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 do do better. We can all do better to support survivors. Well, there's a couple of different levels here that we need to talk about. First of all, uh, the diligence of the district attorney down there to pursue this, because I know a lot of other situations have come up, and and I don't know about the mindset. I don't know what goes on in the heads of police in some situations, or or with uh, district attorneys' offices in the states or crown attorneys up here. But uh, they didn't give up. They were like a, a dog with a bone on this situation, and they were pursuing this. And uh, from all indications, uh, they presented a very, very strong case. It was not he said, she said, is, uh, the way the evidence was laid out. Yes, yeah. And, uh, but, you know, I think I want your listeners to remember, though, that initially when uh, uh, the complainant, the victim, um, Constant came forward, uh, they didn't pursue it. No, they and didn't. He, they, this was, I guess, around 2004 or five, is my recollection, that, mm-hmm. that, that at that time, we were in a very different um, uh, awareness around sexual violence, and they dismissed it, and she ended up having to pursue uh, recourse through civil court um, and had a civil court settlement. And, and then before the statute of limitations, which just basically means before the time ran up for her to be able to have criminal charges, she re-engaged, decided to re-engage the system. And this time they did, uh, sounds like they did do her justice. Well, one of the, yeah, great. and one of the, commi- the, the, the strong elements of this, there's a new district attorney. Uh, Kevin Steele, who obviously was the district attorney in this whole situation, uh, was just recently elected in the last elections. And one of the main planks of his platform was to reopen the Cosby case. I don't know if that's what got him elected, but uh, he certainly followed through on that promise. That's great to hear. I wasn't aware of that. And that's certainly, and again, I, I think it's hopefully sending a message that as a community, as a society, um, we are recognizing that the system, the justice, the criminal system, I don't, I don't tend to call it the justice system, the criminal system has failed uh, uh, women and men survivors of sexual violence uh, in the past and continues to fail them and that we need to do better. We have to do better um, to send a strong message in our community. What about that message and will it resonate? Uh, because you've talked to us before and, and I've heard stories from people that have contacted us anonymously Mm-hmm. And said, "Look at I've I've been victimized. I've been assaulted. I, I've been uh, harassed. I've been, uh, and but you know what? If I brought those charges, they'd never believe me because that's a high-profile individual that did it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Does this send a message that it's still fa- it's? And I'm not going to say it's going to be successful all the time, but that that it can happen. That the high and mighty can be brought down, and they, that they you can't buy uh, your your way out of this. Yeah, I think I I'm hoping that that and what I like to think about is that each of these situations is like." you know, a little bit of change, we chip away at that uh, untouchability of, of people in power, and we chip away at those systems that protect um, people in authority from having to take accountability for their uh, assaulting behavior. So I hope, but I still, you know, I, I just want to caution listeners in, in these situations, these very high-profile situations that we've seen um, in Canada and in the States, they have been a number of victims coming forward um, where it's not been he said, she said. It's been he said, she said, she said, she said, sometimes times 60 or 80. So I feel like it still uh, takes tremendous courage for survivors to come forward on their own and and to especially when it's a person in authority because the idea is, is that I'm not going to be believed. So I, I am hoping that we can start to see cases where um, uh, it's not a laundry long list of survivors who have come forward uh, against one perpetrator. I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that we can see that too. The details uh, that came out in this courtroom I, I found were just most disturbing. Yeah. Uh, there, there have been charges against other people, and you know the, the assertion of the counteract. I guess to, to some of this is, oh, come on, it was consensual or something. This, as as we found out, there was a pattern over years, yeah. Lenora, of yeah. actually drugging women and and yeah. then taking advantage of them once they were under the influence of whatever it was that he spiked yeah. their drinks with or whatever. Yeah. So this was this was premeditated. This was a plan. This was his modus operandi. Yes. Absolutely. And 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 I guess that's one of the things that is so incredulous about this is is the guy that is is found guilty of this right now has this this persona, this public persona 
as yeah. Mr. Nice Guy. You know, his yeah. you know he was voted as you know the best TV dad of all time, and and, yeah. it, it, and all the time he was doing that in front of the camera. Now yeah. we find out what he was doing behind the camera. As a matter of fact, yeah. some two at least of the victims uh, that have come forward were people that were on that show. Wow. Yes. It's, that's, it's so disheartening. And I think it, you know, it's a a realization um, that, you know, what people portray or how they portray publicly may not be the, who they are. And I think in, in this sort of age of, of social media and, and I think more awareness, I, I, I'm hoping that we won't have this where, where it wasn't, you know, these open secret quote unquote, where folks, a certain number of folks just know this stuff is going on around this person, but nothing happens. And, and certainly in this, the situation with Bill Cosby, this was known. Uh, this was not, it, it only started to gain traction again in the last few years, but this was something that that you know within circles was known about his behavior and now you know we see that with uh, Harvey Weinstein as well that this was known um and so i'm hoping that we we will not see these kinds of situations repeating again and again well it's uh, it's not going to change things a whole lot but it's uh, it's a step in the right direction from what happened yesterday Lenore, i think it really is yes thanks so much for the time today we'll stay in touch as always thank you so much it's great to chat with you take care lenore lacassic foss from sasha the sexual assault center here in uh, in hamilton uh, the uh, district attorney of whom we were talking is a gentleman by the name of kevin Steele, and as i mentioned uh, with lenore uh, recently elected to that position. Apparently he's been in the department for some time, I'm told. But uh, his uh, one of his platforms in running for election, their uh, DAs, or we call them crowns up here, uh, are appointed in Canada, but they are elected down in the United States. And one of the planks of his platform when he was running for this job was to reopen the Cosby case, and he obviously held true to that. And uh, he, uh, he spoke yesterday after the verdict was rendered. He used his celebrity, he used his wealth, he used his network of supporters, to help him conceal his crimes. That's uh, District Attorney Kevin Steele. He went on for quite some time uh, uh, talking about the uh, the intricacies of it and the the methodology they used to actually uh, build the case against uh, Cosby, uh, which, of course, was presented and resulted in the guilty verdicts. Joining us to talk about that verdict, Todd White, criminal lawyer and barrister in Toronto. Todd, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Nice to be here. I want to get into the legalities of it. And, and as I say, I know that oftentimes uh, the the... The emotions run high in situations like this because of the nature of the allegations that uh, they've been proven now, but not, notwithstanding some of the stories that we heard in there. But, but now we're dealing with law, and, and that's, that's a much different scenario where judges, people that are going to be hearing appeals, if that's going to hear, be done, uh, have to deal with the facts and not necessarily the emotions. And uh, I know that a lot of people were hailing this and saying, well, he's going to spend 30 years in jail, maybe, in situations like this. But there's a long way to go before anything like that happens, isn't there? Yes. Uh, well, he'll, he'll, the first part will be the sentencing. Uh, I somehow doubt he'll be sentenced to 30 years. Uh, that's the maximum for the worst offender with the worst record and the worst background. Um, but my guess is that he'll certainly do penitentiary time. And and I, I want to talk about this. I was listening to, uh, to uh, MSNBC and on CNN about this yesterday. Uh, the, the system down there is a little bit different than, I guess, what we have, have up here in Canada in these situations. You mentioned about uh, the hearing that's going to go on before sentencing. My understanding is it's pretty thorough. They go all the way back as deeply as they want to in background, and, and stuff that may not have been admissible in court may well be used in the evaluation. Correct. They, uh, it's very unlike the Canadian system. In the Canadian system, you're sentenced on the crime uh, for which you were found guilty, and your your general background, but uh, evidence of bad character um, is usually inadmissible without a strict application. Uh, in these cases, Cosby's going to have to be interviewed by probation officers, and they will go through his entire background, and they will get access to all of the prosecution records, all of the witness interviews, and they can present a brief uh, to the court uh, that will set out his entire history, all the alleged sexual assaults, um, any anything from civil suits, et cetera, et cetera. And so the sentencing is much more uh, harsh than it is in Canada. Will there be victim impact statements allowed? I don't know. They, the, the system by which they interview him by probation um, is all statutory, statutorily mandated, and so they will interview uh, victims um, as part of that. So it may not be a victim impact statement like we know it, but they will certainly interview the victims, and that will become a part of a report. And these reports can sometimes be 
you know, dozens and dozens of pages long. Todd, I want to talk about the the, the, the process that, that was used to actually get to this point right now. And I know that uh, District Attorney Steele uh, alluded to that yesterday in his comments uh, after the, the r- jury rendered their verdict in this situation. Uh, there are have been DAs, and as we talked about even in the Cosby situation, uh, where charges have been brought up in the past, where they've decided not to pursue them. I know the last time this happened, there was actually a hung jury, but other times they just decided to pass on it. How how heavily does the, the possibility or probability of a conviction weigh in, in deciding whether or not you're going to pursue a trial like this? Well, that's something that's only done in the states, and it's one of the reasons that I'm not crazy about the idea of elected district attorneys, mm-hmm. um, because they do things for political motives sometimes and for popularity. And, and they want they, what, they keep a one-loss record? Yeah, or, or, or they, they don't want to go up against Bill Cosby. They don't want to tarnish his reputation. Um, in Canada, it's completely different. If a police officer has reasonable grounds to believe that an offense has been committed, a charge is laid, and it's very, very difficult, uh, if, if not impossible, to convince a police officer not to lay a charge. Um, and the Crown can then intervene if there's no reasonable prospect of conviction. But the decision by, by a prosecutor, like in the States, not to lay charges... When, when a woman comes forward and says that she was drugged and sexually assaulted, um, it would be unheard of in, in Canada, anywhere across the country. Is it fair to say in the context that if this had happened, well, anywhere, not necessarily with a Cosby, but with anybody, that, that the pursuit of justice would have been a lot faster than it was down in the States? Absolutely, because uh, Crown attorneys, a good senior Crown attorney, um, would never consider not laying a charge or withdrawing a charge because it's only a victim's word against uh, a possible testimony of an accused who denies a sexual assault. Um, that would never really enter into the picture. If they, if, you know, a witness who says this happened to me is the best evidence you can get. And so a Crown attorney in, in Canada would absolutely lay a charge and absolutely go to trial in a case like this. And, you know, the fact that, you know, Bill Cosby is, you know, famous and wealthy and, you know, well-revered as a TV star... Um, wouldn't have much of an impact on a, on a prosecutor in Canada at all. And I was surprised at the time um, that it did, and they originally decided not to charge him, which is why the, the DA who won the election campaigned on the fact that he was going to bring charges against Bill Cosby so long as the statute of limitations uh, didn't expire. How long can he drag this out? Uh, we know, obviously, his lawyers said yesterday they are going to appeal this. Uh, that can be, a, obviously, a very time-consuming process. Uh, d- does it start at a lower level of court, and, and can they take it all the way up to the Supreme Court, or is there only one uh, level at which they can actually have that case heard? No, there, there are a number of levels, levels, and they can eventually take it up to the Supreme Court of the United States if there's a, an important national issue of law. Um, but I, I can't see one from my understanding of the facts that would make it to the Supreme Court of Canada, sorry, the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, but there are a number of, of grounds of appeal. Um, but the sentencing will still come first. So they can file an appeal um, after the sentencing is complete, or even before the sentencing is complete, and they can appeal the conviction. Um, but he'll still be sentenced, um, and he'll still be sent to prison, possibly, unless it's agreed that they'll you know, have him stay out on bail until the appeal is heard. But uh, in Canada, for example... Um, you uh, get sentenced and get, if you sentenced to jail, he'll step foot into custody, and then you can file an appeal and ask for what's called bail pending appeal. And that's not granted all the time. i got just a few seconds left here. I, I've seen a number of comments from people that are trying to weigh in on this, and I guess actually prognosticate as to whether that's going to go on. Does his age factor into this at all? He's 80 years of age. Uh, would, would a judge who, uh, who's going to pass sentence on here care how old the individual is once they've been convicted? Um, it sometimes does, but it's not going to take away from, from the actual sentence. Uh, there's a great case of an American where he's sent the, uh, sentenced the uh, prisoner to, I think, 25 years in jail, and the uh, prisoner stood up and said, you know, Your Honor, I'm 95 years old. I'm not going to make it 25 years. And the judge says, do the best you can. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to happen to Cosby. Justice is swift and hard sometimes. Absolutely. Todd, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking some time for us today. Thank you. Todd White, of course, criminal lawyer and barrister in Toronto. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Our next guest uh, is going to talk about uh, things economic, uh, to the NAFTA negotiations, uh, taxing Netflix, and a whole bunch of other things. Steve Howes is an adjunct professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. 
And also, of course, the president and CEO of Millington and Associates. Good to see you again. Good to be here. Every time I call you to come on the show, you're out in Vancouver or something. You've got clients all over the world now, do you? Well, that's part of the fun. I guess so, yeah. Uh, the air miles just keep racking up. They do. I want to talk about the NAFTA things and, and that are going on uh, because it's getting kind of tricky right now. Uh, with uh, stories that seem to be conflicting that say we're very close to a deal, and that was a story from a couple of weeks ago, and then uh, both the Canadian and American side said, no, we're not, and then the uh, head of Unifor, the big union, of course, that looks after the auto workers, uh, said they're not even close. Jerry Dye says, no, no, I don't know where that story's coming from. Well, uh, the person in charge of it for uh, the Canadian delegation, of course, is uh, Christia Freeland, and this is her take. This is a week when very good significant progress is being made on rules of origin for the car sector when it comes to this issue it is incredibly complex we know how many parts there are in a car and rules of origin are about accounting for all of those parts rules of origin there's a phrase that's going to be very germane to this conversation now before we get to that this is a story that just came out today and i want to get your opinion on this an announcement from ford uh, that basically said they're phasing out the use. They're not making cars anymore. They're going to phase it out. And they're not going out of business totally. I hope not anyway. But they're going to, from, I think after 2020, they will make no more cars. The Ford the Focus, the Fiesta, all those, uh, all those cars are not going to be made. All they're going to concentrate on is trucks and SUVs. Yeah. It's, That's really it's weird. a massive shift for no them kidding. in the marketplace. But if you, if you look at it from a business standpoint, from other businesses, companies do this all the time. What's working well and what's not working well, and they shrink their business. Trouble is, it's cars. Cars are visible, and and we all drive a car every day. So you think it's a crazy move, but I actually think it's a brilliant move. That's where they make all their money. They make all their money in the SUV marketplace. That is really the strength. Those smaller cars, there's there's no profit in them. They sell a ton of them, but there's no profit. So why have the manufacturing? Why incur the cost? Why bother being in that business when you can make a lot of money in other areas. I, the, the guy that really got this whole thing going with the small cars was Lee Iacocca, wasn't it? Actually, he worked at Ford at the time. He did. He, he developed he, the Mustang. He did. He was uh, That was his first car. And then uh, the big change was the Dodge Caravan. When the Dodge Caravan came in, that really rewrote the well, rule Chrysler, book. Chrysler was almost bankrupt in the right. early 80s. And, it just and they hired them. Iacocca. They, yep. you know, they poached him from Ford. And he did two things. He did the minivan and the K car. Yes. And yes. basically said, if you for your families, here, I got a vehicle for you. If you just want a little putt-putt thing to go around, I got a K-car for you. Exactly. And everybody jumped on that whole uh, that whole idea. So it's just the evolution. There's going to be a market for people that make small cars, primarily electronic-based. And Ford is saying, that's not us. It's not who we are. It's not who we want to be. And so we're going to move out of it. IBM did it years ago when they got out of laptop computers. Yeah. They invented yeah. the ThinkPad, right? And then they sold it to Lenovo. When it was still making money, they said, you know what? We see the future, and it doesn't make sense for us. So really, Ford is just doing what IBM did 12 years ago. And I guess it makes sense. I mean, it shocked me when I first saw the story, Steve, but uh, just drive around, you know, if you're on the highway. I mean, I'm not trying to sell the product for them, but it seems as if every second truck on the road is a Ford truck. Oh, yeah. The The 150 has has been a goldmine for them, the F-150. And the Explorer and uh, the smaller SUV, I forget what, Escape, are huge sellers. uh, But try to name all the other cars they make. They actually make a lot of other cars, and it just... It hasn't taken off to the level that they want to. But I think it's just really smart business. Well, especially with what seems to be happening here. Now, who knows what's going to happen after the election on June 7th here in Ontario. But there seems to be a mood, as you say, towards uh, hybrid cars and, and electric cars. And I don't know which, what, the, what the percentage is going to be there. But I guess they just figure, you know what, we're not going to do that. We're, we're staying with what we got. Yeah, stick with what you know. And they're good at, and their plants are designed for, too. If, if you go to a full electric car, you have to completely retool your plant. And so with NAFTA, with everything else, we're kind of migrating into the next conversation. They can keep their existing plants and everything else and make F-150s and escapes till the cows come home. But if you're really going to concentrate, there's new players coming into the market with these new small technologies. Guys like Tesla are coming in with lower-end product now. And so how do you compete against that? And so they said, well, we're just not going to bother. 
Uh, now, there have been no official announcements about that, but I know that people are going to hear this conversation and say, oh, the Ford plant in Oakville, it's been there forever. That, that's that's an Explorer plant now, isn't it? It is, primarily. So they, they should yeah. be in good shape. They, they should be in good shape. That's more a NAFTA worry than it is a, yeah. a uh, what they produce worry because that plant can be tooled. It's a very good plant. It's a very modern plant. So it could be tooled for Explorer escapes or one And it has been over the years. They've, yeah. they've focused that, on what, what, it was minivans at one point, yeah. then it was Lincolns at one point. Yeah, and I think it's almost all escapes now. Yeah. I think that's all they're making there, which all is right. good. Let's 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 segue back into the NAFTA negotiations and uh, and uh, Minister Freeland's comments about uh, origin and and that seems to be the sticking point right now is the United States is simply saying we want everything to be manufactured over there and made over there and and uh, which is contrary to the existing well the wave got to the auto pack but even the existing NAFTA agreement. So back it up half a step. Okay, this negotiation is nowhere. Like if if you look at a negotiation and how far how many steps there are, we're at step four of a six hundred step process. So that article that was out that said there was something close to a deal, dreaming in Technicolor. We're just at polar opposites. America's position is they want a better deal on every single category and Canada saying no. And so when that's the negotiation stance, you're really not moving. Now, getting into this issue, that's just getting into the microcosms. They're trying to find common ground. They're trying to negotiate little tiny elements. It's like in a labor agreement. Okay, let's talk about whether or not the break's going to be 15 minutes or 20 minutes. We're not going to talk about salary. We're not going to talk about pension or vacation or anything else. Or the kind of let's coffee machine we're going to put in there. Yeah, yeah, let's spend a month talking about a 15-minute break versus a 20-minute break. That's where we are at, these negotiations. So they've done the small stuff. So they, they starting to do the small stuff, yeah. not even done because we've, we've heard that that you know they said there's something like 37 different delegations in NAFTA negotiations. It's not just it's not just Lighthizer and Freeland doing this, but and they say they've 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 moved to some consensus on other things, but they're probably inconsequential. Yes, the the thing there are three things that come to mind right off the bat, and of course they don't want to comment on these officially: supply management, mm-hmm. the auto sector. And and uh, the other one, of course, is going to be uh, well to do with communications, telecommunications, which you've talked about since they before they even started this, exactly. and said if they're going to open that book up, he says that's the first thing the U.S. is going to look for. Right, is is foreign ownership being allowed? A company like a Verizon to uh, be allowed to come in and set up operations in Canada, and don't forget softwood, lumber, and uh, energy as well are are big components. Of All right, this. I want to get to the, to the Verizon and the telecommunications in just a second because that's your wheelhouse. I mean, that's where you cut your teeth in this business many years ago. Mm-hmm. But the auto sector seems to me is, to, like you say, they're, they're simply butting heads on this. The Canada doesn't want to give in because they've got a pretty good deal. And you look at the thousands of jobs that are impacted by the auto sector here, and it's not just like a Ford plant or wherever. It's the auto parts. And we've got three factories right here in the Hamilton area well, that it, employ a lot of people. And, and auto parts thrive in this area, right? There's is the the private companies, there's the Magnas, there's the auto manufacturers. So you've got Stackpole, you got David Braley's right, company here. Exactly. Or like and it's it's a big, big business, but it's a great emotional argument to present in the U.S. because the centers of the auto industry are all failing economies, right? Detroit, Michigan, places like that. So if you start talking about tech, well, we got wealthy tech people and they got wealthy tech people. So it's it's not as emotional an argument. They want to really make it look at evil Canada. Look at how many parts are being made there. Look how much money's being made. That's why Detroit's where it is. That's why Flint, Michigan is where it is. So they're trying to use this as as a uh, an emotional campaign uh, to set up for Senate run races and re-elections for presidents and things like that. But but the reality here, and I don't want to get too deeply into the politics of this, although that's you, you can't have this discussion without talking something about the politics. When you got a guy like Trump and and some of his minions that are simply saying to people in Ohio and 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 Michigan and and and, and, and other places, I suppose, that look, I'm going to bring those factories back here. Uh, a lot of the jobs that were lost from the auto sector are because of automation. It wasn't because the factory actually physically left. 
Right. It, you don't need 75 people on an assembly line anymore. You need three or four guys that can run computers. Exactly. And and the same well, thing with those the jobs aren't industry. coming back. The job will never come back. The job doesn't exist anymore. And and, and notwithstanding the bluster that Trump may be saying, somebody in that administration must understand that and said, okay, we have to bring a different kind of auto sector job back. Hey, how about the parts manufacturing? Mm-hmm. But even though we don't care about Orlick or it, Stackpole and Hamilton, we, we're gonna we want to bring those back. Well, if you but if, if you they go were over there in the first on a place. tour of Orlick and, and and some of those facilities, they're quite automated. As oh well, sure, right? yeah, they're very state of the art organizations. Excuse me, generating tremendous amount of money, but not a ton of jobs. They're a good employer, but not a ton of jobs. But the general public doesn't look at that. They they look at. It's easy to say we're going to bring the auto industry back. It's it's a great message to send out there, but it isn't true. It doesn't work that way. And even if we lost the auto industry, there's not that many jobs that we would lose as far as the real jobs are in selling the cars and things like that. That's where all the extraneous servicing cars, all those that's where the major employment is. The, the smallest number is in the manufacturing side of it because it's the most automated. I, I can't remember because I don't know how to put a car together. I, I, <laughs> I sometimes remember which button to push to start it. That's about as far as my knowledge about mechanics goes. But at one point, I believe David Braley told me, that I think something like 75% of the cars on the road had Orlick parts in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so, similarly, of course, with Magna and, and other places. So that it's a big deal. Yeah, their their customers are Honda, Toyota, and Ford. So that that's a few of those that, on the road. Yeah, there's a bunch of those out there, right? And Civic, they make for Civics and uh, Toyota. What's Toyota's car? Corollas. Yeah. So volume, volume, volume. But that to have those parts made in the U.S. and shipped up here to get them across the border is going to be way too expensive. But the so, way things go right now it, with, with the auto sector, the, the, uh, somebody told about it's about three or four or five times sometimes that a product will cross the border back and forth. It can. The parts here, then over to there to do this assembly, and then back up here for something else, and then back down there. Yeah, it's kind of quirky. If you can prove that the part's going in to do something and then going back, um, it's taxed differently than if it was you know, a raw material being sold mm-hmm. to become a finished good. And so that, and all those details are in the NAFTA agreement too. And so that's why I say that we're just barely scratching the surface of what the rules are going to be because anything that the states gets as far as sweetening the deal for them, you know we're going to counter it with something. There's going to be a, and so this is how we're going to make it painful for you. Otherwise, it's not negotiations. It's just giving them what they want, and I seriously doubt we're going to do that. So this this story that uh, that came up from this study here that suggests that uh, there could be a huge spike in prices of automobiles would be because if, if we do continue the process we'd have now, There'd be a lot more tariffs in place, which right. obviously are going to get passed on to the consumer. Right. So we're starting to build the message. Okay, if these negotiations keep going down the path they're going, the car that cost twenty two thousand is now going to cost forty seven. That will create the public outcry because right now it's I hate Trump and I like this and I don't have a relative in that industry. I don't care. But as soon as you start to say prices of cars are going to double if this agreement goes down the path it's on going both sides down, of the border, on both sides of the border, now the general public is like, but we all need cars. And we all, so we're not all going to get raises. We're not all going to be in a better place. This is turning out to being stupid. And so that's what they're trying to do is starting to let people know, here's the math. If this goes this way, here's how it affects you. We're seeing it even with um, gasoline, like gas in BC now is a buck fifty. And it, it's because of the, the new tax, which they promised, you know, we would do very sparingly on rare occasions, and they just roll it out again like drunken sailors. So that's, what are we paying now, 133 uh, a If liter? you're lucky. Yeah, so uh, 150 is not that far around the corner. Well, yeah, and you got Premier Notley turning the pipe off over on BC. So that's the political hanky-panky that's going on. Uh, but but th- therein lies the problem is, is the increased cost in this, and, and I guess uh, 
it, it's almost as if if what the Trump administration wants to do is just win, win, win everything and not understand what the financial ramifications are going to be. Because the, the, some of the loudest protesting voices here are not from the Canadian delegation. It's from the U.S. Uh, governors. They're saying, you're going to kill our economy if you do this. Yeah, and I don't think it's that they want to win. They just want to come across that that's the position that they're taking. They're, they're smart enough people on the team that know they're not going to win. And I'd even take it back to an election we had in Hamilton years ago when one of the mayoral candidates said, I'm going to dissolve amalg- amalgamation. Yeah. And talking to him, he, he knew it was impossible, but he knew it was what the people wanted to hear. So he said, I'm going to look into it and see if there's a way to completely reverse it and go back to the way it was. And got elected and then, of course, did nothing with it. But that's politics, right? That's the game. So we're not going to get a deal. I mean, they seem to want a deal before the Mexican election. I, that's not going to happen because it was supposed to happen, I think, by middle of May. No, I don't think we'll get a deal because of politics. I think we're going to get it. We're going to see in the midterm elections, there's going to be a shift in the House and in the Senate, which means the power of the presidency is going to uh, dramatically decline. It'd be more like it was with Obama and Clinton that, yeah, you have your goals, but you got to get past a house that's on the opposite side of the fence. And so you're going to see a dilution. And us as Canadians are going to look at that and just said, you just lost all your negotiating power because now all your blustery threats of what you were going to do, you don't have control of the House or the Senate anymore. So all even the stuff we agreed to six months ago, yeah, we're taking it off the table. We, we never signed anything. Yikes. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Steve Howes with us, adjunct professor of the Good School of Business at McMaster University and, of course, uh, president and CEO of Millington and Associates. Uh, I want to move the conversation into uh, uh, an area that you're pretty familiar with, uh, and that, of course, is uh, electronics and uh, some of the negotiations that are going on with NAFTA. Uh, and and we'll start off with Netflix, because there's a story in the news today about that. It says it's a House of Commons committee up here in Ottawa. Uh, governments, I guess you've noticed, Steve, if they see something that somebody likes and they're buying an awful lot, say, how can we get money out of that? Well, what, there's a product out there that people buy and we don't tax it. How did that sneak through? And that's that's what they're looking at right now is how much do people pay for this every month? How many registered people? There's new ones coming out like Crave and everything else. And why aren't we in this game? Why aren't we making money at this? And so well, the, the tax story, away. It's, it's not a new story because uh, this had come up before. But, I mean, politicians even talked about taxing Netflix at their own peril. Yeah. Like, don't you dare. Yeah. But it's, it's grown exponentially even since then. I, I, we were talking about this on the show a couple of weeks ago. I would venture to say maybe 65, 70% of the TV we watch at home is Netflix. I would think so. I, I think uh, you see a lot of companies now, um, internet companies are going crazy because people stream more. Right? Yeah. It, it's more about not just Netflix, Crave, and all the other ones that are out there. And that's the new TV world is is streaming. So it started off so small. Both, neither one of our daughters have cable. Right. Uh, you know, where they live in their places. Uh, they stream. They have nice big TVs. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, but, <laughs> but they don't need. They don't have cable. They don't need it. They don't have satellite or anything else. They stream everything. Exactly. And so you're losing. It's not just that you aren't getting that revenue. Is they're not getting the tax on the bell bill from your dollars because yeah. they don't have the bell bill, right? So they're losing twice. They're not taxing a growth market, and a lot of those people are canceling their cable services, except for old people like you and me. So they they can't survive on us. They need to find a way to start taxing it, and they made a huge mistake of letting it go when it was small. But they've done this with other things, and, and consumers have pushed back. And you can remember the debate of probably 15, 20 years ago now, whether we're going to start uh, putting a surcharge on the cassettes and, and CD, blank CDs, saying, well, you know, you're, you're doing that and you're copying somebody else's stuff. It's only fair because that way you're still paying that tax and that can go to the people that made the music. And I thought, okay, I think it stinks, but okay, I can understand that. There's no justification for taxing Netflix other than we want the money. Well, both governments are bankrupt. That's, that's well, the okay, justification. There's that. There's that. <laughs> So if you're going to get technical about it. <laughs> <laughs> and they want to, you know, give 
billions of dollars away to other countries and have more social services and they don't know how to pay for it. So we'll just tax something else. Uh, this is interesting. I love government talk like this. Uh, this uh, International Trade Committee reports on e-commerce recommended the government apply sales tax on tangible and intangible products sold through online platforms, which means Netflix. Uh, that they're just talking around it, but it says this is. I love this part. It also calls on the federal government to cut red tape and create policies and programs that are agile enough to help domestic companies get a bigger cut of the trillions of dollars associated with global online marketplace. Domestic companies. Who are we talking about there? The big guys. Yeah, exactly. Who seem to control policy in Ottawa? Well, the the big guys are the people that aren't getting your daughter's money anymore. So they that's now Bell, need that's Rogers, to, right. that's. Yeah, so, okay, government, how are you going to make it easier for us to get your daughter's So not money? only are they going to tax it, they're going to allow those companies to, to get a slice of the pie. In other exactly. words, Netflix is going to have to pay. The, this is protection money. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you give me the $50 every day, and I won't, I'll make sure nothing happens to you. Exactly, it's, and someday you'll owe me a favor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it, it's that's the reality, right? It's the power of the lobby. And if you go to Ottawa, there are companies there that all they do is lobby on behalf. I used to work in that industry. Yeah. And we had not one person. We had a lot of people full-time on the payroll, and their job was to lobby government. And so that's what you're fighting against is, is that big machine and and they get together when it makes sense. Bell, Tellus, Rogers, Shaw, when, when they're fighting a battle that's good for all of them, they band together like their brother and sister. And then when it's something that's in their own interest, they fight with each other like cats and dogs. And so that's, they're not going to let your daughter's business and all their friends go away easily. There's a political reality here. Uh, this is, I can say, this is the uh, International Trade Committee. Committees are made up, obviously, of MPs. And uh, when you have a majority government like they do in Ottawa right now, most of the members of that committee are the governing party. So the Liberals can push this thing through if they want. Uh, the Conservatives on the committee say, we agree with a lot of the recommendations, but not the one about taxing Netflix. Well, they're trying to be, you know, the friend of the voters. We're right. not going to allow you to this. But they don't seem to have a problem with allowing the big three to get a slice of the pie from Netflix. In other words, say, we're okay with that. No. Because no. those guys support us. It's the same reason that you don't have uh, Verizon and companies like that operating in Canada. It's the same lobby. It's the same group. They they work well with conservatives or liberals. It doesn't matter. They're going to protect that revenue stream and make sure that we continue to pay the highest telecommunication costs in the world. And, of course, uh, just uh, following in the political policy, the NDP on the committee uh, say that uh, the Liberals need to apply corporate income taxes on e-commerce profits to everybody, but that's NDP philosophy. Yes. Let's tax everything. Exactly. Okay, and so everybody's being true to their colors, I guess, when it comes to this. Uh, th th which is the part of the problem, and th this is probably going to go through, uh, and, and obviously as soon as this starts to go like this. But Netflix has resisted in the past, and the first time the federal government of the day, and it was the Harper government, then tried to do this, Netflix said, no, we'll just... Pull the plug then. Yep. And they can. Like for them to walk <laughs> away from Canada uh, for a period of time is not painful for them as a, as a company. They make so much money now that and they're they're global company that they actually could and if you look at uh, the walmart story remember when uh, walmart and uh, the credit card companies went toe-to-toe -to -toe, mm -hmm. and walmart just said you know what we just won't take credit cards anymore and did it hurt them it did, but they won, right? It's They'll go through temporary pain. So if the government steamrolls this thing through, I think we will have at least a 12-month period where Netflix is not available in Canada. Now, that'll be easy for us to get around, right? There'll be lots of, remember when satellite dishes weren't available yeah, in yeah. Canada, except everybody on your street had one. And so a black market will appear that'll allow people to still do it, but yeah. They'll, they'll stick to their guns. They got nothing to lose. So they're obviously looking at situations like this and then cutting into their profit margins, and, and the government's going to do this. So there's going to be a battle here. Netflix isn't going to fold here, are they? No, no. And why would they? It's all of a sudden they're going to, it's going to erode their business because people associate the bottom line price with what you pay, whether it's got tax included in it or not, right? You mentioned Verizon a few minutes ago, and that, of course, is the telecommunications giant south of the border. Uh, and, and I want to get into something that I know is, is a, a pet peeve of yours, and that's cell phone rates. 
here in this country, which uh, I think are still the highest in the world. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, yep. we're, we're right on the right the high end of this thing. I mean, way, way up on the high end. Uh, and that is, as many people have said, not just you, but many others, uh, because there's notwithstanding what those three companies will say, there is a lack of competition in this country. There is. It's uh, You can't get a different deal. Like if you go from Bell to Telus, it's the same deal. If you go to Rogers, it's more or less the same deal. And uh, the little companies that have come in, like Fido and things like that, they're all owned by the big three. They kept the brands to create the illusion that there's competition in the marketplace. There's not. It's It's still just four companies. But that's but, a shell game, isn't it? Yeah. When the government announces, oh, we're going to open the market up and, and Horizon and, and, and there's Kudo and all these other places. Yeah. They last about a year and a half, Kudos two years, tell, and then they, they yeah. get bought up. Kudos tell us. Uh, Fido is Rogers. And uh, they, they've they been subsidiaries for a decade, more. Yeah. Yeah. So, but people, you talk to people on the street and it's like, oh, I don't use the big guys. I use Kudo. That's like, well, no. Then you use tell us. No, they get mad, right? They start yelling <laughs> at you. You can't, you can't judge me that way. I said, well, do the math. But you, to, to really lower rates, you need to open the market up. It basically means it to to let somebody like Verizon into this country, who I know are dying. They're lined up at the 49th parallel right now, saying, "Can we get in there?" I mean, they tried a few years ago. Remember that incident? Oh, it's it's been done before. For example, BC Tel used to be 51 percent owned by a company called GTE in the U.S. So, it's it existed, and, and BC Tel at the time was the dynamic rogue vote phone company that did all kinds of cool things. Um, but as long as you limit it to a minority stake, they can buy up to 26% or 32%, I forget what the number is now, then control always exists. British Telecom won't come in here unless they can have 51%. And if they do come in, Virgin, big companies like that, oh yeah, you'll see rates go to a whole new level. Because uh, the incident that happened a few years ago, and again, it was uh, Tony Clement was the industry minister. It was the, mm-hmm. the, I think it was the first term of the Harper government. And they made this big announcement. You were on the show that day, I think, when they made the announcement that uh, they're going to open the market up to foreign investment and actually allow 51%. And within five minutes of them making that announcement, Verizon said, we're coming in. Yep. And they and, and the minister said, yeah, sure. Uh, this is the Investing Canada Act. Read this over, and as long as you got this, we got a deal. 24 hours later, M- Mr. Clement was in front of the microphone saying, now we've changed our minds. Yes. I wonder who called him. <laughs> Remember all those lobbyists in Ottawa? Yeah. yeah they all banded together. And, uh, because they, they called the, the, the companies, the big companies in this country, cry poor to the, the CRTC, the Canadian Radio Television Commission, and say, we're going to go out of business if you do that. Right. Really? Rogers yeah. is going to go out of business? Are you kidding? And one of them actually Bell? wanted it to happen because they, they were the one that was going to sell to yeah. Verizon. And so they, the government was kind of thinking, well, they're going to be happy. They'll have our back. And then they were kind of rallied back, and the other three got together and said, really? You're gonna because if you sell, then we're gonna crush you. We're gonna we're coming after you, and we're not gonna play nice in the sandbox. And we'll hold this up with the competition bureau and everybody else, and uh, we'll see if we can put you out of business. All right, give me a little marketing 101 then, Steve, because the argument here with all of those three is that look, if they do that and there's more competition, yeah, we'll have to drop our rates and be competitive, but we're gonna have to lay people off, and and there's gonna be less service, and we can't build the towers, we can't fix the infrastructure. You've heard the argument before. Uh, Verizon has low rates. Uh, they have lower rates in the UK than they have even in the States. They seem to be thriving. They They're a, not laying people off. They have a better network. They have a more up-to-date network with the latest technology. They are one of the biggest employers in the U.S. Yeah, it seems to be working. So, And with the Competition Act, you can actually force rules on employment, on what jobs, for example, are the call centers allowed to be moved to the U.S.? Well, that could be a condition of the acquisition, saying that, no, you have to maintain a call center that provides service to the the country with this many seats. Uh, for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, life of the agreement. And that's not a deal breaker. I'm sure no. they'd, they'd agree to something like that. Of course not, because there's some advantages to Canada, language skills, things like that. They would find a way to use that to their advantage. Now, for those that are looking at this in the abstract and saying, well, lower the rates, what's it going to be? A couple of bucks. Uh, I talk to folks that do business on both sides. Well, Adam Oldfield, that'll be in here in an hour for where the Tech Talk feature. You've yeah, met Adam. Yeah. He has offices down in the States and offices here. 
Uh, he says, compare my two phone bills. He says, it's ridiculous what we pay up here compared to down there. Oh, we're talking... And that's that's a business that uses a lot of phone. Yeah, cutting in half is is way too conservative. Really? Yeah, it's it's dramatic. So ju- just difference. think then, look at your average phone bill that, that you're occurring right now, and just think if you could cut that in half with lower rates, mm-hmm. which is a real possibility, and not eventually, but probably... Very, very quickly, if a deal like that would happen. And what I'm told is that's one of the sticking points in the NAFTA negotiations is the U.S. is insisting on opening the market up to telecommunications. They are, and, and we're insisting. I mean, they've talked about supply management when it comes to dairy and you being too protectionist. Yeah. We're being way more protectionist when it comes to telecommunications it, here. We are, and and they're saying, okay, you need to open that up, and we're saying, okay, fine, then we want to sell as much oil as we can to the U.S. And they're like, whoa, wait a minute. We don't want you doing that. And so, well, it's it's that's what negotiation is. What are you going to give up if you want to get something? That's why that deal is so far away from an end zone. So there has to be, an, uh, to, uh, to use a phrase that the government loves to use, as a net benefit to this, uh, then if we're going to, you know, there's give and take in negotiations. There's not a whole lot of give and take going on with NAFTA. It seems that way anyway. Uh, and you have to wonder where we're going to be at the end game. I mean, we've signed deals like this, but the problem we have with that then, Steve, is like they did with the European trade deal that Stephen Harper negotiated. Uh, they basically gave up supply management in the dairy industry there, but then they turned around because of the pushback they got from the dairy industry back in Canada and said, okay, we'll, we'll offer a different kind of subsidy to you to try to assuage your, your, your ill feelings about this. So it's going to cost us one way or another. I, I, if a deal changes, and, and to me, I think this is Trump's Guantanamo Bay in that Obama said in his first election, I'm going to shut it down. In his second election, I'm going to shut it down. And it's still there. Uh, Trump has said that he's going to fight and change NAFTA and make it a better deal for Americans. He's not going to get it done in his first term. He's going to use it as a campaign to get a second term. And But I don't think there's any intent that this actually is going to get done. It's too complicated to unravel. And and as far as we as consumers are concerned, I mean, our, our main interest in this is, okay, what's it mean to us? And what we've tried to talk about on the show is, look, at this is not some negotiation that's going on that's not going to have any impact. We just talked about, for instance, the auto industry. Price of cars could go up dramatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, if auto parts manufacturing has to ship back down to the States, they're going to lose a lot of jobs here. And those are people that aren't spending money on the economy when that happens. Yeah, and it's, it, it will have an impact even on a city like Hamilton. It, it's having an impact now. The uncertainty, the thing the business world hates, is uncertainty. It doesn't matter which party is in power; they just want them to have complete control, so they understand how, what the game plan is going to be, and they figure out how to beat it. This has created huge uncertainty because people don't know whether or not to make investments, whether or not to make a change, make an improvement, hire that extra salesperson, because where is this thing going? Somebody puts out a press release, or not a press release, a a story saying the NAFTA deal is almost done. And then for the next 10 days, all you hear about is that that's malarkey. And so that uncertainty is already having a negative effect on the economy. But when you see negotiations of this magnitude going on, do they have a compromise in the, the desk drawer there that they're just not pulling out yet? Or is this, is this serious, a serious rift between the two? I, I believe it's, it's all parties are going into this uh, not believing a deal is going to change. There's just, it's the deal, the deal is so old. Like it, to, to have a contract that that's old, and has been amended and amended and modified and modified, that's really, you get to a stage that's all you can do. You either blow it up, which means like a divorce, you completely separate from each other, or you uh, you just keep making minor changes and compromises within the, the deal. But if you think of it from a personal standpoint, it's like saying going to your wife and saying, okay, I want to stay married, but I want to completely renegotiate our marriage agreement. And everything's off the table. I want everything to favor me, but I'm not divorcing you. I'm just saying I want a brand new deal and I'm going to win on every single category. I'm guessing that wouldn't go so well. <laughs> Jen's probably listening and yeah, yelling say, at the radio right, right now, now. <laughs> try that one, smart guy. <laughs> See how that works. It's, it just seems ludicrous. that uh, and, and, and you talked about this when they first uh, when Trump first talked about reopening NAFTA. Some of this stuff had to be negotiated. For instance, we just talked about telecommunications. 
there was there's virtually not a whole lot in the current NAFTA deal because it was a non-existent industry back in those days. But we do negotiate almost every year, like softwood lumber quotas, farming quotas, dairy quotas. There's there's constant negotiation happening with NAFTA because there are tariffs in place. It, it's not like it's a free border that there is absolutely no tax or tariff between Canada and the U.S. There's a ton of them, and they're constantly being modified, and, and they're little give-and-take deals. If you give on this one, we'll give on this one. And so that's business as usual, and it's been that way since the deal was struck. The day it was signed, they started negotiating changes to it and modifications to it. What they're talking about now is tear it up and start with a blank piece of paper, and that just never happens. Steve Howes uh, from Millington Associates. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming in today. Oh, it was fun. Great to have you on the program. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.